to episode 25 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. Jean Arthur had planned to kill Harry Cohen. In his biography, Jean Arthur, the actress nobody knew, John Aller reports that Jean told people that she was going to murder the head of Columbia Studios. She planned to sneak into his office with a concealed pistol. She felt it was foolproof that she could shoot him and get off scot-free. Aller quotes Roddy McDowell, who said, When she began telling it, my mouth opened because I realized it was a definite plan. And it was quite reasonable in her mind and could have worked out. Had she shot him, many people in Hollywood probably would have patted her on the back. Imagine the crime scene and the investigation. The question would be, who wouldn't want to put a bullet in Harry Cohn? If a headline ran in any American newspaper during the studio era that declared in bold type, actress shot studio boss, the reading public could have assumed it was any number of them. When Jean Arthur signed for Easy Living with Paramount Pictures in March of 1937, she had decided to make it her official break from her contract with Harry Cohn. Easy Living was supposed to feature Jean as an independent player, but Harry Cohen disagreed. As John Aller notes, the hot-tempered studio head declared that she still had three years left on her contract. Cohn started legal proceedings to stop her, but was unable to prevent Jean Arthur from joining the production because her contract stipulated that she could make two pictures on loan-out every year. It rankled the actor that she never saw any of the loan-out fees that went straight to the studio and profit. Harry Cohen tended to favor women who could take his gruff and crude exterior— an answer in kind. Carol Lombard and Rosalind Russell both got on famously with Cohn because they shouted right back at him and did not blanch when his language turned blue. Rosalind Russell, for example, includes a few anecdotes in her memoir, Life is a Banquet, that boast of her success in putting Cohn in his place, such as that time she had him pay for new clothes when he grumbled about it until she threatened to slap him with rental charges when she wore her own clothes to cover for wartime shortages. In Screwball, Larry Swindell's biography of Carol Lombard, he recounts their meeting after she was signed to do Virtue in 1932. Cohn said, your hair's too white, you look like a whore. Carol replied, I'm sure you know what a whore looks like if anyone does. When he made a pass at her, she is supposed to have said, Listen, Mr. Cohen, I've agreed to be in your shitty little picture, but fucking you is no part of the deal. He replied, That don't mean you can't call me Harry. Carol learned the art of a salty tongue to keep men from chasing her around desks. With Harry Cohen, you had to dish it out as well as take it. But that was not Jean Arthur's way. She was reticent. Above all, she valued her privacy. Fan magazines referred to her as the American Garbo and frequently voted her as the most uncooperative of stars. She didn't like to give interviews. She wanted to stand on the merits of her work without having to massage the media outlets. Cohen hectored her to do publicity, pose for photos, and grant interviews, but she wanted no part of it. Jean regarded the fan magazines as intolerable exploitation. 
The relationship between Jean and Harry was never friendly, despite the fact that she starred in one of the biggest, most profitable hits Columbia had, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936. As Bob Thomas noted in his biography, King Cohen, The Life and Times of Hollywood Mogul Harry Cohen, Jean Arthur was the undisputed queen of the Columbia lot. Rita Hayworth gained the spotlight through her willingness to do publicity once she was signed in 1939 for Only Angels Have Wings, but no one could contest the fact that Jean's pictures were critical and commercial successes. Emily Carman's study, Independent Stardom, Freelance Women in the Hollywood Studio System, notes that Jean's bid for freelance status did not occur until the 1940s. Until then, a series of litigious action and counteractions between Jean and Harry Cohen remained the norm. She sat out in suspension for months after completing Easy Living. Jean left Hollywood at the time and spent more time in New York with her husband, producer Frank Ross. Jean Arthur is often celebrated for playing nice characters. John Aller's biography includes the consensus among film scholars that she was nice and she made being nice interesting. More to the point, Jean Arthur showed us women who tried to be nice but often failed or only did so reluctantly. Of all the actors in classic Hollywood, no one showed you in greater relief the workings of their moral compass like Jean Arthur did. She's trying to be good, but she's only human after all. Jean Arthur's lapses from goodness are when she truly shines. Let's look at all the things that she does in Easy Living that are definitely not nice. Sure, she attempts to return a sable coat, but she also wants to give out about a ruined hat, and the last dime she forfeited on bus fare in order to return the coat. She raises her voice at Edward Arnold and says, You don't have to get mad just because you're so stupid, in the height of exasperation, to the man who just gifted her an insanely gorgeous coat. When she arrives late to work and is fired, she takes a picture off the wall and brains the magazine manager with the portrait that has the caption, The Ideal American Boy. After the manager, Louie, from Hotel Louie, offers her a veritable palatial penthouse flat for the same price she paid for a cold water walk-up, $7 a week, she still wants to bargain for more and insists upon her daily egg for breakfast as part of the deal. She also takes a posh dinner on the cuff as well. My point is that Jean Arthur isn't simply nice. She struggles with doing the right thing. From the very start, we know we're in a proper woman's picture. The picture's opening credits revel in the pleasure that many women find in the ritual of getting ready for an evening. We'll see the same thing in opening montage of a woman dressing for a formal evening at the start of The Hard Way in 1943 with Ida Lupino. When the film opens on a grubby mining town, we know that we're going to get the story of how she gets all those jewels. Or when the pages flip through an issue of Harper's Bazaar during the opening credits of Caught from 1949. In the first scene, Barbara Bel Geddes and Ruth Brady pick their favorites from among jewels and furs advertised in the magazine. They calculate their savings and expenditures to see how Barbara might afford to enroll in a charm school to advance out of her job as a car hop. They practice their taste in the magazines first, something that many women do. 
In the opening credits for Easy Living, Mitchell Lyson highlights the way private time a woman spends dressing is about a whole lot more than preparation for company. It's a form of meditation. It's quiet alone time in a space that you control. A woman can dream, she can fantasize, be creative, and project herself into the past or the future. Getting ready for an evening is often the most pleasurable part of any given night. The anticipation offers the biggest thrill. Mitchell Lyson knows this. He believes in it. He's not pandering. And he invites women into the fantasy where we can indulge our taste and our desire for self-ornamentation. He takes us through bit by bit. A large, ornate necklace, a jewel box, a silk bias-cut gown by Travis Banton, stockings rolled up the leg, a dressing table stocked with elegant perfume bottles, a fur coat. By way of contrast with all the glamour of the opening credits, Lyson cuts to a first scene with crass, ham-fisted Edward Arnold, a rich man who is crude and full of contradictions. He's a man who begrudges the cook the price of butter and then thinks nothing about giving away a sable coat that costs $58,000. Mary Nash plays his wife. She's in the middle of her morning ablutions, getting ready in her boudoir, when Edward Arnold storms in and demands to know why she spent $58,000 on a coat. He tears into her wardrobe, a closet that runs the width of the room, which is stocked full of fur. There must be at least two dozen fur coats among her collection. He wants to know why she needs another, which amounts to a boneheaded question, no matter what element of a woman's wardrobe it might refer to. A woman always needs another. The best part is she fights him for the coat once he rips it from the hanger. She grabs it and runs off. What kind of monster raids a woman's wardrobe? She throws a broom and a dustpan at him as he climbs the roof stairs to retrieve the coat. That part is a really nice touch. A dame might cut her husband for a Kalinsky if he's not careful. He flings it from the rooftop to punish his greedy wife. It lands on Jean Arthur's head as she sits on top of a double-decker bus. Now, most women, if they had a sable coat fall on their head like it was autumnal foliage passing in the breeze, they would not think twice about clasping it to their bosom with an iron grip, whispering, my precious. Not Jean Arthur. She alights at the next stop and attempts to return the coat. When they meet on the street, as Edward Arnold realizes that Jean attempts to return the sumptuous coat, he asks her, do you work for a living? Insulted, Jean replies that of course she does. He bestows the coat on her and wishes her luck. Indolent wives don't merit a Kalinsky, but a hardworking girl? Sure, why not? He may be stingy about butter and a rubbish bin, but even fat cat bankers know that a hardworking gal needs to stay warm in winter. A sassmouth dame does not equate with hard-boiled. Jean soft. We know this when she folds a tissue into a blindfold and ties it around the pig's eyes before she takes off her high heel and smashes her piggy bank for what amounts to two nickels. It's enough, though, for coffee and pie in the automat. I have a not-so-minor obsession with women in the automat. Mitchell Lyson's edition turns what were tragic scenarios in 1934 from Joan Crawford and Sadie McKee and Sylvia Sidney and 30 Day Princess into sublime physical comedy. 
Leeson grasps the heart of screwball comedy that stems from incongruity. Here, he presents a woman in an outrageous fur with a matching hat who lacks the price of a good dinner. When Ray Milan upsells the beef pie, telling her that it's a wow, she tells him not to go around putting ideas in people's mouths. It's bad enough she watches a man gorge himself when she's starving. She doesn't need to be reminded of what she can't afford. She looks like the epitome of wealth and style, yet she's unemployed and nearly homeless and starving. This scene acts like the public version of the opening credits. She puts on a performance in the automat of affluence and high fashion when she's nearly in the gutter. The style she exhibits conceals her desperation and anxiety. It creates a buffer between her hardships and the outside world. The automat was one of those public places that offered you a large degree of privacy. You could be alone there, no matter what your financial situation was. You didn't have to talk to anyone, not a waiter or any of the other patrons. Think about Edward Hopper's painting from 1927, which featured a woman alone in the automat with a cup of coffee at night. There were so few places that women could go unescorted at night and just be by themselves with their thoughts. To the casual eye, like Ray Milland, we assume she's from the society set, and he asks about having met her socially in the past. When he realizes that she's skint, he does the most gallant thing. He swipes her a dinner for free, and as a result is sacked on the spot. And then the series bit devolves into glorious slapstick. Men are so greedy when all the doors open and the food is for free. They waste time fighting each other instead of eating the food. Wisely, though, Jean sits tucked into her beef pie and ignores the fracas around her. When Lyson commands our attention to draw a distinction, he highlights how absurd modern life can be. Butter or lard, Kalinsky or sable, a bull and a chicken. I can't forget to mention the utter delight Franklin Pangborn brings to the picture. Next to Sylvia Fowler, he's my favorite, absolute favorite gossip on film. If I knew how to make a ringtone, it would be him saying the sablest sable coat they ever did sable when he gossips with Louis about the Bull of Broad Street taking Jean Arthur on as a mistress. Or maybe I could add the way that he says recherche or when he refers to Jean as a chicken. And bless him, he arrives laden with finery. Franklin Pangborn's arms are loaded with a gown, ostrich feather fans, shoes, jewels for her to see if she likes them because he discovered her and thinks the fat cat banker will pick up the tab. Later, when Ray Milan tries to shame her for having taken the coat, she tells him, you don't know what a fur coat means to a girl who never even had a tippet. Surprisingly, Easy Living wasn't a big hit when it premiered. It's one of those pictures, though, that has aged into a classic. Preston Sturgis was fairly dismissive, if not contemptuous, of his work writing screenplays by this time. In his memoir, Preston Sturgis by Preston Sturgis, he dedicates barely a paragraph to his screwball gem. He says of himself, I was not a willing writer. Sturgis was impatient that he was kept on the payroll as a writer instead of being allowed to direct. He asked various producers if they could see him as a director. They all said yes, and when he pressed them for a date, they responded right after you do one for someone else. 
Paramount was wary of taking a risk with him as a director, but by the time he wrote Easy Living, he was well-established as a screenwriter who delivered hits. He was signed with Paramount for $2,500 a week. A producer gave him a story by Vera Caspare to adapt and then backpedaled and said it wasn't the right time for a comedy. Sturgis disagreed and took his script to Mitch Lyson. Added to Sturgis's financial woes at this time was the fact that he opened a restaurant called Snyder's on Sunset Boulevard. You can watch Easy Living on YouTube. I'll leave you now with David Chirichetti's interviews with Mitch Lyson and his right hand, Eleanor Broder, from the book Mitchell Lyson, Hollywood Director. Mitchell Lyson. I was getting just a little bored with the polite drawing room comedies I had been doing, and I decided to cut loose and do a lot of slapstick. It starts right at the beginning when Edward Arnold goes tumbling down the stairs and lands with a crash at the bottom. His butler says, I see you're down early today, sir. I set it up from the very beginning. All the dialogue between Gene Arthur and Ray Milan in The Automat was just plot points, and in Preston Sturgis's script, they set it all in the doorway when he's entering and she's leaving. Then I thought, what would happen if all the doors in an automat opened at once and all the bums in New York rushed in to get free food? I took it from there, and it was the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. Floors were swimming in food, and it was real food. I had every stuntman in Hollywood in there taking pratfalls. There was one man named Murphy who had a restaurant here called Murphy's, and he kept stuffing himself until it made me sick to my stomach. Then another guy just put some pepper in the fan and everybody started sneezing. And Jean just sat sat there, calmly eating her chicken pie through the whole mess. When Jean's been shown her hotel suite, the obvious thing would be to have her react at every little thing. So I did just the opposite. She didn't react at all until Louis Alberni left her, and then she just sat down and said, golly. That was an enormous set. It took an entire stage to build. The hotel was based on the Waldorf Towers, which when it was first built during the Depression was a financial failure. Preston took the idea from the hotel, and the owner says, how could such a phenomenon be such a flop? Ray Milland actually got stuck in that plunge while we were filming the shot, and it was the funniest thing watching him try to crawl out, so he kept the cameras grinding as we used it. Then he put a terry cloth robe on that said, stolen from such and such hotel on it, and that was one of Preston's best gags. We had to play the love scene with them both lying on this long couch in opposite directions, and their heads meeting in the middle, because that was the only way we could get it past the censors. There could be no physical contact outside of a kiss. After he kisses her goodnight, there is a delayed reaction. She suddenly realizes what has happened and she says, hey, because she realizes she kind of liked it, so. I cast Esther Dale as the secretary because she looked just like Eleanor Broder. We dressed her just like Eleanor and we fixed her hair like Eleanor and Esther watched Eleanor very closely to get some pointers about how to play her character. That business where Esther gets the various telephones all mixed up, that was definitely Eleanor. We stole that right from under her nose. As a matter of fact, when we came back from the screening the other day, Eleanor asked me, did they laugh about the telephone bit? And I said, they howled over that. Eleanor had several telephones on her desk, and she always answered the wrong one and got them all tangled up. So of course we had Esther do that too. I made Esther even more deadpan and matter-of-fact than Eleanor, if that's possible.
Eleanor Broder. Everybody in Hollywood was always talking about how difficult Jean Arthur was to work with, but we didn't have any trouble with her at all. She was on set every morning on time, and she knew all her lines. She was painfully nervous, and she stuttered terribly during the rehearsals. But the minute the camera turned, she was fine, and she became a completely different person, brash and sure of herself. She was terribly concerned with the way she looked on screen. Mr. Lyson came in the week before and personally directed her all her wardrobe and hair tests, and he even styled her hair himself. She was very pleased when she saw the results, and from that moment, she had complete trust in Mr. Lyson. Mr. Lyson always said, if an actress is satisfied with the way she looks on screen, she'll devote all other attention to her acting. And he was right. Thanks for listening. Why not leave a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast? Join me next time for episode 26, when I discuss Mae West in Night After Night from 1932. Thanks for listening.